Obi-Wan Kenobi admits he has a drinking problem and a bunch of hippies get high on the farts of dying psychics. You're listening to Eddie V's Horror Show. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Welcome back to the show. This is episode number 10, and as always, I'm your host, Edward Villanova. If you're not familiar with the show yet, I'm a horror writer, and I talk about the appreciation of all things horror, and I like to give tips and advice to my fellow writers of spoopy tales, too. So if you're a writer, especially a horror writer, stick around for some writing advice. Welcome to 2021, everybody. It looks like we made it through. Episode number nine was the last episode of 2020, and therefore the last episode of season one. Now, I'm not crazy about season one consisting of only nine episodes, but I'm certainly going to try for 2021 and season two to uh, have more episodes than that. Now, you may have noticed the long absence after I promised no more absences, but I had a good reason. Bear with me. Yeah, it seems like karma turned around and bit me in the ass after several episodes that included jokes about COVID-19. I ended up getting COVID-19. And let me tell you, I was not one of the lucky asymptomatic ones. That was one of the worst experiences of my life, as far as getting sick goes, at least. The only time I remember being sicker was when I had meningitis as a kid. Other than that, this was hands down the worst thing I've ever been sick with. I know a lot of people have stories of testing positive and not even knowing they were sick. Not me, man. I was sick as a dog. But there was some good that came out of it. In between running a fever of 104 and praying for death, I managed to get some sleep. And you can read about this online. COVID has been known to cause very vivid and very intense dreams. And I definitely experienced that. I had this one dream where I was with a group of people and we were on this desert planet, kind of hiding among the wreckage of this bombed out city. And there were three other planets in the sky. And we were using these big, like, telescope laser cannon things to try to find enemies on these other planets and kill them. But the enemy had the same type of telescope laser cannon things too and we weren't sure which planets the enemy was on, and we didn't know if they knew what planet we were on, so it was kind of tense. It was like an interplanetary sniper fight. Toward the end of the dream, I was up on the roof of what was left of this building, and I was looking for the enemy, and one of my ex-girlfriends was standing at the bottom of this ladder, and she was shouting up at me that I needed to come and feed her pet rat. And the other people were like, shh! You need to make her be quiet. She's going to blow our cover. I guess they could hear us, you know, planets away. (laughs) But she was like, come and feed my rat or I'm going to throw boiling water on you. And I was sort of like whisper shouting back at her, shut up, feed your own damn rat. I'm in the middle of a war here. How many of us have not dispelled an angry girlfriend in such a manner? Anyway, that's how weird some of those dreams were. I would say it inspired me to write a sci-fi story, but... That one really didn't. It was just super weird. However, out of all the super weird and vivid dreams that I had, two of them did inspire me to write. So I spent lots of time writing, and now that I'm well, I'm still writing them. And like I said before, 
I'm a writer first and a podcaster second. So I absolutely had to bang out a good portion of these stories before I could even think about using writing time to work on the podcast. So sorry again for the delay, but I guess I have to be kind of realistic here and say this is something that's just going to happen from time to time. By the way, if you like my interplanetary sniping dream with or without the rat feeding debate, go take it. I gift it unto thee. Write an amazing story with it. It's yours. Speaking of stories that are yours, let's talk about some real-life listener horror stories. This episode's true listener horror stories are courtesy of fellow horror author Reed Alexander, who, like myself, also hosts a podcast. It's called The Nightmare Feed Podcast, and you guys should give them a listen. Anyway, here are two first-hand accounts from Reed. This one's called The Jogger. How we ended up there is a bit of a long story. Suffice to say, a friend and I were waiting on another friend on the other side of the road, next to an overpass. We parked, got out, and sat on the rise heading down to the road that went under the overpass. There we just enjoyed the night while we waited patiently. It was a moonless night, so it was pretty dark under the overpass, but only a few yards away across from where we were sitting was a streetlight illuminating the general area. Beyond that was another drop that fell into a creek which was heavily forested. From where we sat, we could see a little ways under the overpass. The other side didn't have a street light, so it was hard to see very far. At the edge of sight, we both saw a jogger heading towards us from down the street, on the side of the road that would pass the light post and forested area. Within a few minutes, the jogger would run right under the light, and we'd get a good look at him. This is important because there seemed to be something off about the jogger. I remember saying, is that someone running this way? To which my friend just agreed that it was. However, we both noticed it was impossible to focus on the jogger. Like, the harder I looked at him, the harder he was to see. If I just looked off to the side, I could see his form more clearly, bobbing as he ran. My friend noted this was a common trick of the light, so we waited patiently for the jogger to pop out on our side of the overpass and run right under the light. As the jogger drew nearer, he became harder to see. As he approached the light, he simply faded and vanished, as though the light had somehow rendered him invisible. Then, he was just gone. This next story, also from Mr. Alexander, is called The Shadow. Back in the day, me and my friends used to go ghost hunting. This is not like the kind you see on TV with complicated equipment and cameras. In fact, it was usually with bottles of beer and spray paint to make graffiti. Needless to say, we'd never had a serious encounter and mostly just screwed around, like typical young punks. There was this one place that was pretty common for ghost hunting. A train tunnel that was long out of commission, recessed into the woods of Connecticut, along with its many rivers. There were lots of stories about it, how a train derailed and hundreds of people died there. How the construction crew that built it had several nasty accidents, killing dozens during the construction like it was cursed or something. We wanted to see it, so we grabbed a bunch of beer and headed out. Importantly, we all made the choice to check the tunnel out, stone sober, and party after we'd seen it. Out of about six of us, five had stuck rigorously to the plan. The sixth having admittedly had a couple before embarking on the short hike to the tunnel. As we approached, there was this most peculiar laughter it was easy to write off as just a strange bird call, but it sounded almost human. 
We also couldn't quite tell where the laughter came from. There was a tall, sheer rock face to our left, and the open waters of our river to our right, so it could have been coming from just about anywhere. The tunnel itself was an ominous presence. It towered overhead like a large mouth about to chomp down and eat us. The opening was pitch black and looked more like a solid wall of blackness than an opening. Even the beams of our flashlight seemed like they couldn't penetrate the opening. It was like the dark had a thickness to it. Stepping through the opening took an unusual amount of courage. I remember feeling like I was breaching the barrier of some dark realm. Inside the tunnel, there was this sense of absolute dread. Everyone was on edge, and I remember one friend visibly shaking. Eventually, someone said that something touched them, and we all chickened out, leaving the tunnel and heading back for a beer. As we exited, we heard the strange laughter again, this time only briefly. I remember one of my friends screaming, What the fuck is that? We all turned to see a shadowy figure, just off the tracks. It must have been about... 10 to 12 feet tall, but held no identifiable form and twisted like a plume of smoke. It rushed up towards us, so we ran for our lives. I've never been so scared in my life. To this day, we're not sure what it could have been. It was still night. There was no wind that could have been creating a dust devil or something like that. It was silent, so it wasn't birds or bats. I've never seen anything like it before or since. Thanks for sharing those stories with us, Reed. Good stuff. If you would like to submit your first-hand account of a true horror story, or even just a creepy, strange, or mysterious thing that happened to you, you can message me on Facebook, either through the Eddie V's Horror Show page or through my personal Edward Villanova page. Or you can contact me through my website at edwardvillanova.com contact. And that goes directly to my personal email. If you do it that way, uh, be sure to leave your name and email address. Don't worry, I don't have a newsletter or anything. You won't get signed up to receive emails or anything like that. It's just so I can say thanks for sharing your story. I'm also taking submissions of two-sentence horror stories and horror-themed haikus, which you can submit in the same way. So anyway, when I was feeling too shitty to write and I wanted to give my brain a break, I watched a lot of movies, almost exclusively horror, as I usually do. I saw a lot of good ones, and I saw a lot of bad ones. Bad one, for example, stay away from Pilgrim if you have Hulu. Um, I'm not sure if it was supposed to be a horror comedy. I kind of feel like it was, but either way, it was kind of funny when it wasn't supposed to be, and not funny at all when it was trying to be. Uh, An example of a really good one, and I may end up doing a full review of this in the near future, I don't know, but... Bone Tomahawk was amazing. I, I know it's a few years old now, and uh, I heard some things about it that it was you know ultra brutal and that it was hard to watch. So I was expecting something like I Spit on Your Grave, and honestly, I was putting off watching it because you know you have to psych yourself up to watch something like that. It was hard to watch in parts, I will say. Um, like they don't spare you anything. You know? But a lot of it comes down to just the brutality of frontier life, and you kind of forget the things that TV and movies usually spare you. But it's nowhere near as hard to watch as I was led to believe. There's one scene where I almost had to look away because it was pretty gnarly, but all in all, it was a really good movie, and I put off watching it for way too long. But 
That's not the movie I'm here to talk to you about today. Today, we're talking about 2019's Doctor Sleep. And I'm gonna do something a little different. I'm gonna try not to spoil anything. Because if you were like me, and you've been giving Doctor Sleep a pass, you should watch it. I know a lot of people, even horror enthusiasts, don't really like The Shining. But whether you love The Shining or you hate The Shining, you should still watch Doctor Sleep because... Okay. Horror movie sacrilege time. It's better than The Shining. I'm sorry, but it just, it just is. That's subjective, obviously. But if you strip away all the cult classic reverence people have for The Shining, if you take away all the horror movie nostalgia and look at these two movies side by side, I think you'll agree that Dr. Sleep is the superior film. And it works pretty well as a standalone movie. Like it, it doesn't it doesn't have to be necessarily connected to The Shining. It could have been its own story. Uh, I'm actually glad that um, they did make it a sequel to The Shining because I feel like that that history lent a lot to this story. But I wouldn't be able to trash The Shining without my drink of the day. Yes, I'm continuing the practice of telling you what I'm drinking because today I'm drinking something fairly unique. I got a bottle of liquor for Christmas from none other than Violet Church herself. Thanks, Violet, if you're listening. It's a bottle of chartreuse. I never tried it before, but I mentioned it to her that I wanted to try it. I've been hearing about it for a long time, so she bought me a bottle for Christmas. If you don't know what chartreuse is, it's a pretty cool drink made by Cartesian monks who have been making it since 1605. It's made from a blend of 130 herbs, which is impressive because I can't even almost think of 130 herbs, period. And only two monks at a time ever know what all the herbs are and how to blend them. And those two monks, after they learn the recipe from the last two monks, must take a vow of silence, breaking it only to pass on the recipe to their replacements when they get too old to keep making it. It's a pretty stout drink, 110 proof, which is high enough to rival another famous green liquor and another favorite of mine, absinthe, which is usually between 90 and 180 proof, depending on the brand. It shares at least one thing in common with absinthe. Okay, at least two things, the obvious thing being its green color. The color chartreuse is named after the drink, by the way, not the other way around. But the less obvious thing, unless you try them both, is that anise is pretty prominent in both flavor profiles. Anise is a plant that has seeds that taste sort of like black licorice. Now, I do like black licorice. I know a lot of people don't. But even if you don't like black licorice, you might like chartreuse anyway. That anise is only one herb. Remember, there are 129 others it's blended with. You can definitely taste some rosemary and basil in it, which comes out pretty aromatically. Well, Violet didn't drink any of it, not yet anyway. She did smell it, and she thinks it smells like pizza. I personally don't smell pizza at all, but I can see where she might think of pizza with the rosemary and basil being so forward. Maybe even a little oregano. It has a really strong and distinct flavor that honestly is overwhelming at first. You have to kind of settle into it. So far, everyone I've shared this liquor with has disliked it at first. Then a few sips and they say that it kind of grows on them and very quickly. 
And now they like it. Um, weird, I know, but uh, it does have a tendency to do that. It did the same with me. Anyway, yeah, worth a try, in my opinion. Even if you decide you don't care for it, it's kind of a cool thing to be able to say you've had or to offer to people at a party. It's like a conversation piece you can drink. It's not super hard to find, but you'll probably have to go to a bigger liquor store to get it. I know Specs and Total Wine have it. Uh, Macadoodles or maybe Goody Goody, they might have it. Uh, you might have to call around a little bit if you don't have uh, a Specs or a Total Wine in your area. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's totally worth seeking out and trying. If you're someone who likes having liquor cred, if you're a booze hipster, I recommend at least trying it. It's not dirt cheap, but it's not too expensive for a bottle of fancy booze. It's like 60 bucks. And there are a lot of ways to drink it too. So if you need to tinker with it a little bit, you know, you can, you can do that. Most people do. Uh, I personally like it on the rocks with a little lemon. And that is what I'm drinking today. Okay, so Dr. Sleep. I'll be honest, I was interested in this one too for a long time, but I kept putting it off because I knew what it was, sort of, and what it was didn't seem to match up with what it seemed like it was supposed to be, or what it seemed like a sequel to The Shining should have been. It was honestly hard to think of what a sequel to The Shining should be anyway. I knew it was a sequel to The Shining, and I knew Ewan McGregor was playing grown-up Danny Torrance. But I was also kind of like, but they're not at the Overlook Hotel anymore, and Jack Torrance is dead, and Dick Holleran is dead, and Shelley Duvall is still weird-looking. So what in the hell kind of sequel could they possibly put together that's any kind of cohesive with the original? Let me tell you. It was the perfect blend of elements from the original and completely new and original material. So let's let's get into this movie a little bit. We get a lot of the original characters in it, um, you know, all played by new actors, of course, who honestly did a really good job. But it would have been great to get at least one actor in there, one specific original actor. Okay, so I know I said no spoilers, but just this one, maybe, I feel like I need to say it. So, spoilers in three, two, one. They go back to the Overlook Hotel, where adult Danny Torrance encounters the ghost of his father, Jack Torrance. Much in the same way Jack Torrance encountered Delbert Grady in The Shining. He's played by Henry Thomas, who they did a pretty good job of making look like 1980 Jack Nicholson. And the scene is great, but man... What a missed opportunity. How great would that scene have been if they got Jack Nicholson? I know he's a ghost, so he's supposed to look the way he did in 1980, and Jack Nicholson doesn't look like that anymore. But, you know, if they can make Mark Hamill look like he's in his late 20s to early 30s in The Mandalorian Season 2, sorry, that's a little bit of a spoiler if you haven't seen that yet, or make Carrie Fisher look like she's 19 in Rogue One, or make Jeff Bridges look like he's in his 30s in Tron Legacy, they could have made current-day Jack Nicholson look like 1980 Jack Nicholson. I, you know, I'm sure that kind of CGI isn't cheap to produce, but I think it would have been worth it. And I know Jack Nicholson seems to be kind of informally retired, so maybe they did try. I don't know. Uh, it, I, it would have been great to have him in there in a cameo 
you know, just, just for that one part. And I'm not going to say Henry Thomas didn't do a good job of playing Jack Torrance. Like I said, they did a great job of making him look like Jack Nicholson from the original film. But would it have killed him to try out a Jack impression? Possibly the most impressioned actor in Hollywood history. And the guy doesn't even try. I mean, come on, man. Give us a little Jack. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe he tried and he sucked. And Mike Flanagan, the director, was like, nope, your Jack Nicholson impression sucks. You're just going to use your regular voice. Anyway, Dick Holleran is in it, too, as a ghost who helps out Danny Torrance. Uh, now Dan Torrance. Obviously, they couldn't get Scatman Crothers back because he died just six years after the original release of The Shining. But they did a great job in casting, and they replaced Scatman with a very talented Carl Lumley, who you may know as Detective Petrie from Cagney and Lacey, or more recently from his appearances in the TV series Supergirl. And obviously, you, you can tell it's not Scatman, but his performance is so spot on, you forget pretty quickly. Lumley did a fantastic job. Uh, he does a great job of mirroring Scatman. For the scenes where Danny Torrance is still a little boy at the beginning of the movie, they replaced Shelley Duvall with Alex Esso in the role of Wendy Torrance. And she gets all of Shelley Duvall's weird facial expressions right. And it's not long before you totally buy that you're looking at the original Wendy Torrance. Maybe slightly less goofy looking, but yeah, you know, she did a, a great job of mirroring Shelley, both in her appearance and her performance. Uh, Henry Thomas was really the only weak link there. Henry Thomas, it, he did a fine job, and I can understand how the directors could have maybe thought that a Jack Nicholson impression would have made it a little bit hokey, but I don't know. I think that would have... I think it would have it would have gone a long way in my mind because you hear him speaking before you see him, and I would have loved to hear those first couple of lines and go, "Oh shit, that's Jack Torrance, that's the ghost of Dad," you know. But anyway, and Shelley Duvall, she gets a lot of guff, I think. For I mean, the movie came out in 1980, and still people still talk about how weird she looked. She went through a lot of abuse for that movie. Look that up on Google if you want to know more. That She went through hell for that movie. Anyway, so the movie starts out with child Danny Torrance still being haunted by the ghosts of the Overlook Hotel. And the ghost of Dick Holleran appears to him and helps him out. He explains how they're drawn to people who shine. And they latch on. Making people who shine feel fear gives them energy. It's what they feed off of. But he teaches him a trick to get rid of the ghosts. He hands Danny a little wooden box, almost like a miniature coffin, and he tells him to open it and look inside, explore every inch of it, even take a whiff of the inside and see if there's a smell. He tells him to know that box inside and out because he's going to recreate it in his mind. Then, any time one of the ghosts shows up to torment him, he's going to put them inside the box in his mind and lock them in. And there they will stay until he chooses to let them out. And if he doesn't choose to let them out, that's where they're going to stay forever. We get this great scene. Okay, so Danny Torrance hasn't spoken uh, since they left the Overlook. And there's a scene where his mom is begging him to speak just say one word, say anything, but he won't do it. 
Then there's a scene where Danny and Wendy are sitting on the couch at home watching cartoons. Danny looks over at the bathroom and he sees the gross old rotting lady from the bathtub in room 237 at the Overlook that, you know, his dad made out with in The Shining. Danny seemed to be most terrified of her earlier on. But then he just casually gets up, walks into the bathroom with the ghost, who looks more than eager to see him coming. He shuts the door. Then we see the box in Danny's mind open, and we hear the ghost scream. And these are these are screams of agony, of panic. Then the door opens. Danny calmly walks out of the bathroom, and he sits back down next to his mom on the couch. She asks, is everything okay? And Danny turns to her and says, yeah, everything's fine. The first time he's spoken since they left the hotel. So now that he knows he's not helpless, he's not just at their mercy, he can finally speak again. And I, I love the way that they did that. And later on, we see Ewan McGregor as all grown up Dan Torrance. And we get a shot at one point of just rows and rows and rows of locked coffins in his mind. So all those ghosts in the Overlook, everyone that followed him got locked in a box in his mind. So the meat of the movie is that it's not only ghosts that feed on the energy of people who shine. There are other, um, what should we call them, shiners? Other people with psychic gifts who have uh, learned to feed on the energy of shiners, shiny people, whatever. They call themselves the true knot. They do this to prolong their lives and rejuvenate themselves. They're able to theoretically live indefinitely as long as they keep eating other shiners or eating their essence. So they travel the country or maybe the world looking for others who shine. If they're useful to them, like they have a unique gift, they might try to get them to join them. Otherwise, they devour them. They breathe in what they call their steam, which I guess is sort of the, like the life, life force or maybe the soul, you know, it's the essence of that person. The lady who's sort of the leader of the group, uh, they call her Rose the Hat, uh, I guess due to the, like, pork pie-style hat she wears all the time, explains how fear and pain purify the steam and make it more potent. So they kidnap these people, and they torture them to death so they can breathe in the steam. Okay, so it's time for maybe another minor spoiler alert, but this is also a warning. So, I absolutely hate when kids are harmed or die in movies. I'm a dad, and that probably has something to do with it, but I can't stand when bad things happen to kids in movies. It can completely ruin a movie for me, even one that I was enjoying. So this warning is that the true knot in the movie Primarily, they hunt children, because apparently children shine the brightest. And yes, that includes not only kidnapping kids, but torturing them to death. Fortunately, we only have to see this happen once, and it gets implied at another point. But it is honestly pretty hard to watch. It's a pretty important scene, and I, I know why they left it in there. It really gets the ball rolling on the main story. So I don't fault them for having the scene in there, but yeah, it, it's, pretty, it's pretty rough to watch. So if you're like me and you hate seeing bad things happen to kids, 
Um, I hate to say fast forward through the scene, but maybe fast forward through the scene. You'll know when it's coming. So there's an especially bright, shining kid named Abra Stone. She physically witnesses the true knot murder a child and devour his steam. She's been sort of shining pen pals with Dan Torrance, and she tells him telepathically about the murder. And the two of them start trying to find a way to stop the true knot. Rose the Hat ends up drawing a psychic bead on Abra and seeing that she's basically a steam smorgasbord. She's so powerful, she'd be a feast for the whole group. So while Dan and Abra are trying to zero in on the true knot, the true knot is trying to zero in on Abra. It comes down to being a pretty intense battle of the Shiners. Ah, man, there's so much that I want to talk about. There are so many great twists and turns in this movie, and I want to spoil the hell out of it, but no, I promised no spoilers, except the one, or the two, I guess, that uh, I hope you're able to skip over if you didn't want to hear, but... Yeah, if you haven't seen Doctor Sleep, go watch Doctor Sleep. I've also heard there's a director's cut that involves more of, well, more of that first spoiler that I talked about, which I don't want to say, you know, in case you skipped it. So, yeah, I guess really that's all we can say about Doctor Sleep for right now. But it is, it is an absolutely amazing film. It's probably my favorite film, at least in, from since it came out. All right, so I guess it's time to talk about my favorite thing to talk about. Me! <laughs> my favorite part of the show. Everybody's turning off the podcast now. But uh, anyway, I got proofs back from Thinker's Quarterly Fiction a few days ago for the fourth installment of their Unspotted Punk Anthology. One for the story I submitted there and one for the cover art I designed. I'm not exactly sure when that's coming out, but I think it's supposed to be fairly soon. Uh, in the next few months, probably... And I'll let you know when it's out. Um, I'll probably put a, a link to it there on the uh, on my website also, edwardvillanova.com. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, I have two COVID-inspired stories I'm working on. That's stories I was inspired to write while I had COVID-19, not stories inspired by the pandemic or whatever. I feel like there's plenty of that already. They both sort of fit into the Southern Gothic category, so... Uh, I might try to publish them elsewhere first, but otherwise they're going to end up going into my Southern Gothic anthology I mentioned before in a, you know, a few episodes back. And, of course, more on that as it comes, uh, as it comes together. And, of course, more on the Libra Monstrorum as that develops, too. Uh, that's been the main focal point for Violet and I since we started it. And other than what I have cooking over at Theakers, that will probably be my next major publication. I have a YouTube video coming out. We're gonna get an AI to write some spoopy stories for us and see how much of a threat AI is to the creative world and specifically to authors. The main question I wanna ask is, do we need to come together to take down Skynet? Is today the day? Is now the time? I guess we'll find out soon. I also have something pretty serious coming down the pike. Uh, also with Violet Church, she seems to be my main collaborator these days, which uh, I'm more than happy to work with her. She's she's an amazing lady. We're we're working on something pretty major together. Um, has to do with the literary world at large, and um, 
Well, I guess we'll make this a, a teaser for that for now. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you more about it when things de develop a little bit more. My recommendation today is the movie that I mentioned earlier, Bone Tomahawk. If you like westerns and you like horror, which if you're here and you don't like horror, then you're either lost or you're my grandma. Sorry about the cussing, Gam Gam. But yeah, if you like westerns and you like horror, you'll love Bone Tomahawk. I'm a big Kurt Russell fan, and if you are too, then extra big bonus points uh, for this movie there. Like I said, uh, there are some parts that are hard to watch, including one scene involving a pretty gruesome inverted death by cleaving, sagittally. So if that kind of makes you squeamish, maybe give it a pass, or at least, you know, skip that scene or be ready to look away. It's pretty gnarly. But otherwise, check it out. It doesn't spare you any of the brutal details of how rough things were in the Old West when it comes to medicine or bloody fights between native tribes and European settlers. As a disclaimer, I'll add, I don't really know how Native Americans feel about this. I'm part Native American myself, but I don't really identify with the culture, so I'm hardly qualified to weigh in on it. Um, I'm mostly Italian, which last time I checked was largely considered white. So the bad guys in this are a native tribe. They sort of skirt the cowboys versus Indians issue by bringing in a Native American consultant at the beginning of the movie called Tall Trees, played by the very talented actor Zon McLaren, who plays Crow Daddy in Dr. Sleep, by the way. He's been in a lot of stuff recently, though, like uh, he plays Matthias on one of my favorite crime dramas, Longmire. Anyway, Tall Trees explains that the tribe that they're dealing with aren't like other Native American tribes. They're evil, brutal savages. They're cannibals. And other local native tribes stay away from them. So I don't know if that's really enough separation to, um, you know, enough separation from legitimate Native American tribes for this to not be offensive. So, I mean, just FYI, if you find that sort of subject matter offensive, um, that might be another reason to give this one a pass. But if that's not a distraction for you, if you can enjoy some. Uh, fantastic acting, some well-choreographed action, a good amount of gore, great characters, and a well-written and immersive story. I highly recommend Bone Tomahawk. And of course, no episode would be complete without me reminding everyone that I have a merch store. It has stuff not only for fans of this podcast, but for fans of horror in general. Lots of Lovecraft stuff and 80s horror movie stuff, so go check it out. Go to my website, edwardvillanova.com, and click on the store button at the top of the page. All right, everyone. That wraps it up for episode number 10. Tune in next time for episode number 11, which will be the second episode of season number two. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed it. And as always, stay creepy. Thanks for listening. If there's a topic you'd like to hear about, or a work of horror you'd like to hear reviewed, be it a movie, book, game, or TV show, I'd love to hear from you. Send me an email at elvillanova00 at gmail.com. Check out my WordPress site to read more horror and writing topics, or to read through rough transcripts of the show. You can find that at edwardvillanova.wordpress.com. Lastly, you can follow me on Twitter, at edwardvillanova.com.